I'm Phil Santos, and this is the first episode of Making a Scene, a podcast about building community in real life. Today, I'm actually talking to a startup founder. Brent Henderson is the founder of Zup. It's an app that rewards college kids for going out to local bars and restaurants with their friends. It's really just at the University of Central Florida right now, but for an app that's $5 a month to take over a 50,000-person campus where literally one out of five UCF iPhone users is a member is totally crazy. Normally, I would not interview a startup founder on the podcast, but Brent is actually authentically driven to bring friends together in real life. And since his original company, Party Tutor, started eight years ago, he's worked with dozens of bar owners trying strategy after strategy to get college kids through the door. Brent is super knowledgeable about how to engage college kids, and we talk about how tech companies trigger our emotions to keep us engaged, how bar owners can design their spaces for connection, and what works to engage college kids on social media. So without further ado, here's my interview with Brent Henderson. Hey Brent, welcome to the podcast. Hey Phil, great to be here. Awesome, man. I, I, you know, we've had so many amazing conversations at Dandelion over Dank Vegan Burritos, and I'm glad that we get to go into go deeper into the areas that we've always, you know, kind of talked about in the past. So happy to be here with you. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always a fun and interesting conversation. I'm excited to learn some new things about the space that we're talking about, about even myself, and yeah. explore those areas. Yeah, maybe maybe there's some deep things lurking in your mind, and they'll come out. Who knows? So, uh, the kind of the context of why I invited you here is I'm really interested in what was once Party Tutor, and is now called Zup, which is an app that helps people find specials and deals. And I don't want to explain it, but because I, I I'm gonna mess it up. But can you kind of tell me the history of how this company started and where it is now? Yeah, so I'll give you I'll give you a little bit of the background and, and some context behind how, how it got to where it is today. So I went to college at UCF, go Knights. And when I first got to school, joined a fraternity, was pretty big into the party scene, and um, after a couple of years started to take more seriously my career and my yeah. life and what I was going to do after college. So I ended up getting really passionate about entrepreneurship and ended up essentially meshing my passion and my lifestyle of going out with friends to local bars and entrepreneurship by creating an app called Party Tutor, mm -hmm. which would provide college students with access to drink specials and events that were happening around campus. So essentially building my own dream app as a college student. And, uh, you know, we can go kind of into the story of how the transition has happened over the years about, um, you know, how, how I ended up be losing my passion for it yeah. and it transitioning. I mean, well, that's so it started off as kind of a directory of drink specials, right? Essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, what is it now? So yeah, now it has evolved into, like you mentioned, it's now called Zup. And it is a $5 a month membership that rewards college students for going out with friends. So it essentially provides them with exclusive 
rewards in the form of different deals and perks at bars and restaurants. And it turns out that it's an incredible incentive to bring friends together. So what started Mm -hmm. off as something that was really about saving money, ultimately I realized that the core value proposition that it was really solving and what I really care about solving is using technology to bring friends together. Mm. Is that something that you kind of co-evolved with the people who you're helping? Because I know that from the beginning, you always had traction, which is a lot to say for any companies to have like people who are actively going to your website, downloading your app, caring about what you're doing. But I'm curious if the community of, you know, uh, 18 to 20 something bar crawling kids around UCF who were getting value from your app, um, if they sought out these new features or if you kind of like just shot into the dust and kind of it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i i think part of it was actually really looking at what did what did i want in college and what do current college students want out of their college experience and how do you actually form a technology platform a mobile app and a business model around supporting and supplying that for people. Mm -hmm. And so whereas before it was an advertising model when it was Party Tutor, I had to rethink that. And a big part of the transition as well in in this whole process of rethinking it to what it is today, um, I had become... I had really lost my passion for it as mm. being this this platform that was helping college kids find cheap drink specials that yeah. could get drunk with friends. And I found very little purpose in that once I had gotten out of the scene. Mm-hmm. And so I actually drove home to back to Clearwater where I grew up. I told my, my parents I was going to shut down the business and really wow. start fresh and find something else to do. Not that it wasn't making money, but it's just really I started to understand that it's really important for me to do something that has meaning and has mm-hmm. purpose and that I can believe in. And I didn't find that in Party Tutor anymore, so I was going to throw it away. And what my dad said was, instead of throwing something away that you've worked so hard to build and that was become had become popular and influential, yeah. why not try to use it for something positive? And so that allowed me to think more logically about, well, let me, let me really look at what's been created here and see if there is something positive that yeah. can come from this. And as I started to observe the consumer behavior... It's, I started to realize that the community, community aspect, the friendship aspect, the, what was created was actually supporting people in coming together with friends. And so I started to lean more in towards product innovations that would mm-hmm. more so facilitate that for people. I kind of want to go back to that, that moment where, you know, that day, like, do you remember that day when you, you drove home? Like you drove, what what kind of led up to that moment where you had to drive two hours home to talk to your parents about shutting down your dream? Yeah, I definitely remember it. It was, it was actually a few months that culminated into that moment of, of a fairly spontaneous decision to drive home. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, I'd started to get involved in, understanding different geopolitical things happening around the world. And I actually, I started to become pa- compassionate about yeah. people on the other side of the world and, and these things that were happening. It's a good thing. And, uh, but I didn't know why I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Um, and I didn't have a community around me that I felt like I could talk to about these things. Mm. Um, and that made me feel really lonely and confused and mm. purposeless. Were you still in a frat at that point? Uh, this was right after I had graduated college. So I still, I was living with some, some of the fraternity brothers, but, um, 
yeah, my passions were de- were very quickly changing from going out uh, with friends at you know the local bars to uh, you know this this pursuit of seeking truth, whatever that means in yeah. the world. Yeah, and so as I started to get more involved in these things happening around the world, I had felt like we were. I was living in a false reality my entire college experience. It's like yeah. there are these things that really matter that are happening, and I've been completely oblivious to them. Oh, my God. And am I deceiving other people? If every fraternity-like person could like <laughs> go through that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, mm-hmm. but I'm just um, – I want everyone to have that realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's uh, and it took it took me – you know, getting into that situation of being done with college, being able to pursue the business full time, and then me being exposed to some different things that were really truthful and mm-hmm. meaningful and in a lot of ways more in tune with the real world in a more all-encompassing way and perspective. Um, and so the more I dove into that, mm-hmm. the more I was p- being pushed away from my business as far as me finding meaning and purpose yeah. in it. And so it it ultimately led to a place where I was so emotionally depressed mm. um, that I couldn't really take it anymore. And it had really built up to the point where I got really emotional and I didn't know what to do. But I felt like it was important for me to shut down the business in some ways in in some of in somewhat of a protest to some of the things that I was learning. So what were you t- learning? Well, I was just I was just learning about just um some of the corruption that was happening around the world and um but you know i i wanted to i I saw this as a potentially a stage by shutting down a company that was very influential at ucf that thousands of students were using yeah i saw it as a potential stage to uh protest you know or at least bring awareness to some of the things that i felt like were um were meaningful and you know instead of doing that right then although in some ways I was very tempted to, um, I actually had my sister, Heather, who was driving, who was going to UCF at the time, drive me back. Cause I was such an emotional oh, wreck. Man. She, I made her drive me back and yeah. had to sit down with my parents. I talked to them about some of these things that were happening. And, um, and that's when my dad brought that up to me and allowed me to think more logically, which was really important. I was in a very emotional state and I, yeah. and I think some, that's not something to run away from. Right. But, Sometimes we can lean too far into emotions. You know, my, my friend told me that something that stuck with me for 10 years. He said, don't make a decision at the height of your emotions. And I go back to that all the time. It would have been a very bad decision for me to do that. And so that's, <laughs> those are very wise words, yes. But it's tempting to make decisions. But we need to um, sometimes... You know, it's important to to understand where those emotions are guiding us, but yeah. but to still obs- take a step back and observe what's what's happening because um, emotions are powerfully influential in the way that we make decisions, especially with the way that we react react spontaneously to things. Yeah, you just you just snapped your fingers, and the the first thing I thought of was like notifications, notifications, like reaction, just. You know, this we're like six second attention span goldfish. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a technologist and as a technologist with um, somewhat of a more spiritual or meaningful trajectory for what you want your company to mean, like how do you 
how are you going to be different than Mark Zuckerberg? Like, how are, how are you going to create something that really does help people connect, and not just online, but in person? Mm-hmm. So the way that I, I think about technology, and this is really, I think, it's really helpful for everyone to understand how technology is being used to trigger our emotions to make us make certain decisions, like notifications. Yeah. So there's a book called Hooked by Nir Eyal that is based on very common psychological principles that have been around for a while, but he ties them into the way that technology works to get us hooked onto products. And it's really important for us to understand how this is working so that we can break free from if there are things that we believe are not good for us. So I'll give Facebook as the example since since we're talking about social media. So the way that Facebook gets people hooked is first there's some type of trigger that we receive. So before you have Facebook, it's an external trigger where mm-hmm. I tell you, oh, you need to join Facebook so that we can connect and so that we can stay in touch and so okay. that I can write on your wall. And so I say, oh, that's that sounds pretty valuable. So I'm going to then, the next step is that I take action. So I download Facebook and I create a profile. Next, uh, there is some type of variable reward. So once I then get on the app and friend request to you, now all of a sudden I can see p- pieces of your life. And that mm-hmm. is a reward for me because that's really interesting to me. And so I get that reward when I first join the app. And the fourth stage of mm-hmm. the hooked model is the investment stage. So that's when I am posting my own status of what's happening in my life and then it goes back to the first stage which is another trigger so when you comment now on my status it's then sending me a notification that is triggering me and it's not telling me what the notification says because it wants to make sure that i open the app okay so now i'm now i take action on opening that because i can't live without knowing what you commented oh yeah and then my variable reward is seeing you say something and that there's dopamine rush and there's all types of chemicals that are being Especially involved here. when it's something that confirms or um, amplifies our identity, right? It's like the most exciting notifications are likes on my photo or, um, <laughs> you know, like you, you, how you take this whole complex human web of uh, connection. Everyone who I've ever known is kind of like I'm connected to on Facebook and the things that make me feel the biggest dopamine rushes are when I put myself out there either uh, with my writing or with photos and someone confirms my identity. Mm -hmm. It feels good. It feels really good and we can't deny that and we can't um, act like it doesn't feel good. Um, It doesn't mean that it always is good for us, but it is, it is an human connection is an innate desire and that is not a bad desire but the way we are getting it through social media oftentimes is intoxicating in a way where we're not experiencing human connection in its fullness or the way that it was designed and so so going back to your question about how do i see us using technology for good is the same way that technology is addicting and is created in a way that's incentivized to suck you in we if technology and if cities even are to compete with our digital devices and what they're offering, then we have to make experiences with friends just as rewarding, just as mm. even addicting. Yeah. And so how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of things that you can do, but you use much of the same playbook that they're using to get you hooked on digital technologies. So the variable reward is an aspect of that. If you think about Netflix 
It's extremely easy to tap into. It's affordable in many ways. Okay. There's much less risk, social risk, for, for, for engaging with it as far as mistakes that you could make in a conversation. Yeah. There's, there's less social anxiety. So it's so easy to understand why Netflix is so addicting, yeah. and it's giving us that escapism um, and in, in, the, in the home. And, and you know, society has never been able to experience entertainment in the home until very recently, until, yeah. you know, the television really in the last generation, but especially now with digital devices and everything we have to access. So we need to make experiences easier to discover, mm. easier, more affordable, uh, and less risky in every way possible. And so when you're saying risk, you're not just saying um, like risk of physical violence or danger, right? You're saying like social risk or... Yeah, social risk is a big one because especially when you see the generation that's coming up, um, so much of their connections uh, have been happening online and uh, so that's what they're getting used to and, and that's what's comfortable. And so it becomes more and more socially risky mm. to step out of your comfort zone. And so how can, in, how can we create environments? Um, how can we create places and spaces that make it more comfortable for people? And how can we de-risk the, the, uh, the anxiety that might come from those experiences? Is there anything concrete that you can do as an experienced designer to do that? So this was uh, when, I, when I started another company that, that called Zup previously that was an event <laughs> discovery at, uh, platform for yeah. cities. One of the most – and that only lasted for a few months until I got back to the college level with, with Party Tutor and then rebranding re that as Zup, not to right, create not too much confusing confusion. at all. <laughs> but uh, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. Um, but one of the most successful things that we did there was create a scavenger hunt downtown. Mm -hmm. So instead of you just going around downtown and you going to the same places that you always go to that you're familiar with, we created an experience where – we would send you to different places on somewhat of an adventure mm -hmm. and the one of the one of the risks one of the things that people really desire when going to a bar is hopefully you'll be able to meet some new people totally. that feels really good when you can yeah. meet new people but that's hard and that's and and the environments created at bars are typically not created in a way to conduct to make it easy for you to meet new people yeah they're bringing they're creating a space so it can happen but they're not helping you out once you get they're, to that space they don't think of themselves as experienced designers or social architects social engineers right? Like there are so many elements that a space designer or a bar owner has when they're creating a place and they're thinking more about drink sales. They're thinking more about music and I love music, but I think ultimately we're, we're, we go out for connection. Definitely. And we, ha they haven't had to compete with what they're competing with now with yeah. digital entertainment yeah. and social media and all the other ways that people can experience connection and or entertainment. And now we're moving into an age where they need to become experienced designers. They need to create what I call inspired interactions, which are these structured experiences that inspire people to interact with one another. So, so getting back to the scavenger hunt and what made this so special and, and what the unlock that I found for what 
I now see as the way for venues to now compete is this concept of inspired interactions. And the way that we did it through the scavenger hunt was Mm -hmm. we gamified meeting new people and de-risked that because we rewarded people for doing things together with people from other Mm -hmm. teams. And so now all of a sudden, not only is there less risk to meet someone, but you're actually incentivized and you're rewarded for meeting new people. And so that's really powerful. And so we did things like... uh, when Snapchat face swaps were really popular, do a Snapchat face swap with someone from another team. Now you're getting together, you're making a funny face, you're sharing a laugh with the other person and you're meeting that new person in a completely, uh, you know, anxiety reduced way. There's no fear in going up to them because you, you both are on the same page. You both have a common purpose. Um, and so we, we created um, activations that were or, or challenges that created these points that involved meeting new people. And people yeah. had the most fun that they had ever had before <laughs> at any bar event. Um, yeah. And so it was it was it was many things that were in, intertwined together, adventure, um, gamification, but most importantly, this and human connection. And you facilitated this through notifications in the app? So we listed we listed out the missions in the app, yeah, okay. and they submitted things um, through the app. Yeah, there. you know, it's it's really interesting to talk about this because um, I think a lot about how having activities and gamifying interaction um, is creating like little structures or games that get people to talk to each other. Is uh, it can really give someone the the best night of their life or or the best time of that night Mm -hmm. because when we're in a space, especially in nightlife and we don't know anyone, it's threatening on a biological level. Like 500 years ago, thousand years ago, if you're in a room and you don't know anyone, first of all, incredibly novel experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. we, we just grew up in smaller communities and you're probably going to die, right? Like all of human safety is built on, family, kinship, uh, and well-matured relationships. So I really, I really invite like bar owners. I really hope that bar owners start to not just think about art, not just think about music, not just think about drinks or atmosphere, but actually how to incentivize people to connect with one another. Because yeah, like they're competing with Netflix now. They're competing with the golden age of television and they, um, I guess there, there's a lot of cleverness that we can start to implement if like collectively the human race, the human consciousness, if we start to solve this problem um, in the spaces where people are already going to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope that they do too. And they're going to be forced to, otherwise they'll go out of business. It's not going to happen overnight, but yeah. that's why Top Golf is taking off and why such a large variety of people love it is because they've got this inner inspired interaction of the gamification and they've got servers coming up what is that okay top golf is a three-story um golf driving range that is a hybrid golf driving range and bar restaurant at the same time but girls can play you know it's you're not moving around you're not you know going on on golf carts i I need to pause you there girls can play (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> from my experience girls do not have a great time on the golf course okay um, I, I haven't been on golf courses either. yeah so it's Phil, not Phil i don't i don't have a great time on the golf course either <laughs> um but especially yeah so it's basically my point is um 
anyone can play no matter your skill level or your enjoyment of the sport of golf. But what's cool about it is they have the best of both worlds of an outdoor sport and um, an entertainment venue that Mm. serves you food and drinks. Um, So in the comfort of an environment where there's couches around and it's just Mm -hmm. a magical um, merge between entertainment and socialization mm-hmm. um and it's taken off and it's one of the most popular entertainment things to do it's, it's really like another level of bowling what bowling okay. used to be it's like <laughs> another level a more fun game yeah a funner game whatever however you say that um and uh just better service it's, it's like bowling times 10 as far as the, the experience i gotta go because i i think about um how nightlife and and maybe we wouldn't traditionally think of that as nightlife because it's not like a music venue or something, but there are very few nightlife brands that have been able to scale, uh, across the country Mm. and maybe how there's house of blues, there's blue martini, um, some restaurants, I guess, but that's really interesting that they've been able to bring interactive interactivity into that kind of environment. Yeah, that is interesting. There haven't been very many that have scaled, but that is certainly one that stands far apart. And I I believe that it is because they are being intentional around creating a social Mm -hmm. environment that's enjoyable for a variety of people. Um, And they're really enhancing the experience beyond just you sitting at a table and saying, okay, now have conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that with... um party tutor when it was that and and now it's up you've had to talk to hundreds of bar owners and you've had relationships with them they've paid for your marketing services they've stopped paying for your marketing services really at the end of the day they're just trying to stay afloat and stay open because so many bars and clubs do close but i'm curious like what are they what are they just not getting that's a good question i'm not i'm not entirely sure i think i think the nature of the business a lot of times is that this would be a fun thing to do, mm. but they're not as focused on there. There's a group of people out here that I want to serve. And I think yeah. that's a big difference because I think if you start out a business saying there's a, there's a, there are people out here that have some type of uh, pain or something's missing that I have a gift to give them. Yeah. Then you start to think about, well, how can I really go above and beyond to bring that to them? But oftentimes the business is sometimes more about what's in it for me. And it's oftentimes not a sustainable venture when it's all about you. Um, So that's just an observation of what I think some of them, how some of them get into it. Um, But yeah, I I don't think that, that very many people who run entertainment venues are thinking about the importance of what we're talking about right now, which yeah. is the um, the experience that people are really seeking. And I don't think, I think that there's a very surface level way of thinking about what entertainment is. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like um, all based upon this house of cards of distraction. Mm. And, and even sometimes, you know, digital entertainment is about distraction instead of, and maybe escapism is tied into that, but what about engagement? What about connection? What if what if we're not 
thinking about how to create an experience around connection and engagement and what that would have to look like. And that's hard. Like yeah. that's hard to pull off because there's a, there's, there's so many emotions and there's so many risks involved with going up to strangers or even your own group of friends and doing that. And so there, there are, you know, it's a, it's a space that's not, um, there's not a cookie cutter way to, to pull that off. But And there aren't really, really high profile examples of spaces that have been successful really banking on that. Right. Right. I think this, this is, um, not an easy problem to solve for sure. Um, but I think that this is why we're seeing different interactive, um, activations being, being infused into places like, you know, um, like just different games, like some of the things that you've mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's, there's a place called, Hmm. I was just there this past weekend in, uh, in St. Pete. Um, it's called, can't remember the name of it, but Mm -hmm. they have, um, they have these giant kickballs and they use okay. yard yard ball i think they call it but it's basically beer pong but with trash cans and, and oh no and kick balls. so they've got that on the outside they've yeah. got cornhole set up they've got bowling and it's uh, massive perfect and it's like the <laughs> most it's where everyone goes and then i wow. go there and i'm like wow this place is this, this is, place is slammed yeah. and then i'm like well there's probably still a lot of places to go around here i walk around as we're leaving or actually i was in the uber as we were leaving and there were three bars that I drove by that barely had more than 10 people in the bars. And this place had at least you know, 500. I, I'm sure those bar owners are like, oh, that's just trendy, you know? But I, I don't think that playing games is a trend. <laughs> you know, like the average bar, if you think about the average bar and what the games are, there's like empty dance floor. <laughs> there's buy a drink. There's uh, wait for you know, wait to get into the bathroom and there's like talk to a stranger, (laughs) (laughs) like maybe karaoke or some, some games on like a a screen or something. Um, but I, I really do think that's the evolution of, of going out is, uh, more about how we connect with one another and, and less like drinking the nicest, newest alcohol. And, and I met, I met, Three people there at this bar. Guarantee wow. you I would have not met anyone at these other yeah. bars with the experiences that you just mentioned that are available. Um, the last time I was there, I've only been there twice. The last time I was in there, I think I met four people. Now, I didn't build lifelong relationships with these people, no. but it was really cool to meet new people and to experience the even the chemical reactions that come oh. with meeting someone new, you know? Um and so I, t- I totally agree. I mean, that's, that is the evolution of going out and bars are going to be left behind that don't innovate in that way. You know, I love that feeling of meeting someone new. It's not talked about a lot or understood or because it doesn't happen <laughs> as often, right? Not after but, college. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot harder after college for sure um, because these aren't these experiences aren't curated as often. But you did say one thing that I want to go back to, mm-hmm. which is, um, that games are some people think that they're very childlike and that people won't you know don't want to engage with them or won't have as much fun in them. But I think that so much of life is a process of rediscovering our childhood. Yeah, I think that we were our freest, we were our most fun self, our most adventurous self, mm-hmm. our most creative self when we were kids, and we've lost that, and we don't think that we need to rediscover it. But I think that's been a journey that I've been on is 
rediscovering who was I yeah. back then. You did improv classes, right? That was a really big um, change for you. Yeah, improv classes were were huge in my, uh, I think in in part of that journey of because um, it's all improv is all about acting like a kid. I didn't know why I was, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to get out of improv class. Um, I had just heard that it's tremendously beneficial to do it, and I trusted the people that said that, and so I did it, and it was amazing. It was an incredible experience in seeing what I'm capable of and my, you know, unlocking my own potential, um, getting comfortable on stage. And there's just so many benefits yeah. from it, but also to be around a community of people who are also trying and we were trying together and there was something yeah. really special about that. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I've done a little bit of improv just at home. We had a friend who he's, uh, taking classes and he kind of facilitated a night for us, uh, maybe a group of 12 of us. And it was kind of like we were all cooking a meal together, but instead of filling our bellies, we were just like filling our bellies with laughter. <laughs> like it was just like, how much can we laugh tonight? And yeah. we just like went, well, we that was that was the most I've laughed in, you know, maybe years. Laughing in, in is one night. such a great thing. It's so healthy. And you know what's what I ob- have observed recently that's interesting about laughter. I don't know if you've ever watched a comedy movie by yourself, but mm-hmm. when I have. I have found myself sometimes thinking that things are funny, but I rarely will laugh out loud. Now, if I were to have watched the same funny movie with a group of friends, I would be laughing a lot. And the interesting part about that is even laughter, the act of it itself creates a connection between people because we are in agreement that something is funny and we have that shared moment together. And that in itself feels even better than laughing by yourself. Yeah, I remember um, when I was growing up, uh, my dad would just tell the longest, most boring stories, and people would kind of like, I used to call it a fake laugh. I try not to call that anymore because I think that it you can authentically try to make someone feel better, and I think that you can authentically um, kind of extend your enjoyment of a moment through blowing air out (laughs) in a kind of contorted ways. And I just remember that I used to, I was just so embarrassed for my dad telling these long stories that would like hold people up and just not reading Mm nonverbal cues that I always kind of like limited my laughter. I didn't want to laugh very hard for fear of what the other people would think about you about, or I think I just, um, I think I just felt so embarrassed for how my my dad's poor nonverbal skills mm. and I didn't want people to fake laugh for me. So I just kind of turned that whole thing off. And so I, I would only laugh if something like was really, really hilarious. Mm. Which was probably really uncomfortable to be in those. Yeah, because laughter is kind of social glue. I think laughter is how we make people at ease. It has all these... Um, it has all these purposes beyond just feeling good, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have um, I have sometimes observed that with I've, – I've been going through a process of pitching investors over the past few, few months, and I have mm-hmm. observed when there's a situation where I can extend my laughter that there's an additional connection that happens between us. 
and it's giving them permission to laugh too. And then we start laughing together and it's, it's actually a really powerful connector. Yeah. Um, but, but oftentimes I had to be conscious about actually laughing because sometimes I'm so in my head that I don't even allow myself, like I'm not, I'm taking the situation too seriously. Yeah. And that is, that is creating a barrier between us connecting. Not going to get your million dollars if uh, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't laugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I, uh, Oh man, investors. Well, you were in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. How is that culture? Uh, do you believe in these people who are creating the future? Are they mm. coming from a good place? Are they vultures? Vulture capitalists? Yeah. That's that's uh that is what some call them. Um so I'm still exploring this. I, I, I do think that venture capital is a potential path for people to create yeah. something that is revolutionary. And it, for many companies, it is the best and maybe even a lot of times the only way to do it at the scale in which they're doing it right now. Right. Um, but what I have realized is that I care a lot about something that's really meaningful socially transformative in a really positive way and that's lasting for generations their business model behind venture capital is all about getting to an exit and wow. a lot of times they don't really care if you die they die along the way in fact they want you to die fast if you're going to die um oh, and man. so uh and this isn't this isn't a blanket statement so i'm not speaking for about all firms but right. their business model is all about getting to an exit, meaning selling your company to another company or going public within five to seven years. Wow. Um, because they need their ROI because they have investors that they need to return money for. And so as much as they want to do good in the world, they can't make decisions based on how much impact your company is making. They have to make decisions based on is this going to be a unicorn or not? And if it's not, then I want to know as quickly as possible. And so my questions are going to be around me uncovering if you're going to be a billion dollar company in the next five to seven years and when you say unicorn that's like a facebook uber that's a uh yeah unicorn is is the terminology that's been described as a one billion dollar valued company oh okay so once you reach that's unicorn level number. you get to your you could you your your company is valued at over a billion dollars yeah and you but you were also in an accelerator over there Yep. Yeah, okay. I was in the launch accelerator. Can you, can you tell me about that experience of being around other startup people and hopefully making your company better? Yeah, the uh, the launch accelerator was a really great experience. I had this opportunity to pitch uh, dozens of investors, so it was it was awesome to be able to see the questions that they're asking mm -hmm. and to dive deeper sometimes in one-on-one -on -one meetings beyond the three-minute pitch and the short Q&A afterwards. And so, um, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to get that many connections that quickly without it. And so that the launch accelerator is very focused on fundraising. And that was yeah. the main intention that I had for, for going out there was to, to be able to pitch investors and... Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty hands off aside from the Thursday and Friday where we were pitching investors and so it was it was a really great experience to fast track my my knowledge of how venture capital works and how um really how this city operates. Do you see yourself as a community leader, right? Because you're kind of behind an app, you're kind of you're you're talking to developers and I'm not sure how much face-to-face -face or person-to-person -person interaction you have with the people you help. So are you asking about a Orlando community perspective or within? 
within our, our community of um, actual you know subscribers at UCF. The subscribers yeah. for your, your app, yeah. So we do have a really cool tool that's integrated in the app called Intercom that we use to chat with our subscribers and they yeah. can chat with us. And so we're leveraging that and their whole mission, Intercom's mission is to make business more personal. So they care a lot about making it easier to communicate with your users and your okay. customers. And so we leverage that to have more of a personal and emotional connection with our customers on that more granular personal level of real conversations. And so sometimes I've hopped in to talk to people, but when we're at 6,000 paying members, it's not possible for me to scale out my personal conversations with them. But we're learning ways about how do we make our business more personal and how do we show people that they are cared for? I think that's one of the big positive impacts that we can have as a company is to make people feel heard, make them feel cared for. And we can do that at scale through this type of technology. Some part of like, I love your heart and I love your intention. And some part of me is completely rubbed the wrong way by his hearing you say fit like cared for through an app. Yeah. So let me give you, well, so there's there's a few different ways that we can do that. I guess I guess where's that is drive from is that I know that some people feel really lonely in college. Yeah. Um and so that's yeah. again, it can't be a blanket statement because some people don't have that struggle. Um I was in a fraternity and I had, you know, almost by default a lot of friends or a lot of connections. Yeah. I ended up only really getting close and tight with only a couple of those friends, but I experienced loneliness oftentimes um sometimes it was masked and i didn't know it yeah but i know that some people um struggle to make connections especially when they first get to college and loneliness is a really challenging thing to deal with it's very emotionally destructive um in some ways and so if we can be people who are real people through this, through the technology that can mm-hmm. connect with people, then that's I think that that's really meaningful, um, and we can do that in physical environments, which we're experimenting with. What is the impact of us being physically present at different giveaways, at mm. different events, and how can we show pe- how can we be friendly to people there? Yeah. As well. So when you say us, can you like just kind of paint me a picture of what the structure of the company is right now? Is you have some employees or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have um, Bryce Natal as our director of partnerships. So he's more of the bar and restaurant relations side. And then Brian Dickey is our director of operations. So he's handling much of the internal communication, content, copywriting, marketing, many of those things. Um, And then we have Megan who is on the customer service team. So she's handling a lot of those conversations when people reach out or sometimes we'll be proactive in reaching out to people. Um, and then Maddie is handling a variety of different roles and she's someone who's been in a lot of ways, the face of the company at some of these events and activations. So there's, there's kind of a a few people who are available. Um, if someone who is a subscriber for sub community member needs to talk to someone. Yep. And that's, that's happening on a daily basis where we'll be engaging with anywhere from 30 to 50 people per day. What kind of issues do they run into? Um, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's asking certain question to get clarification on one of the rewards that's on the app. Sometimes it's canceling the membership. Sometimes it's changing uh-huh. a card. So we've got some of those, uh, aspects of, yeah, 6,000 people. 
I remember um, there was a conversation that we had at a coffee shop at one point. Maybe you were five years into building the company. Now you're at seven. And it seemed like you had kind of hit a plateau. How did you break through that and get to like 6,000 people? (laughs) I'm smiling because... I feel like we're always hitting, it feels like we're always hitting plateaus, but it's yeah. funny to look back and be like, no, we're actually you, growing, you but you it had feels like 200 like members or something. Yeah. Okay. So it took about for our first five months after launching the membership, we had about 200 paying members and, um, and it felt like we had no idea where to go. And it, yeah, it seemed like we had no idea where to go. Um, one of the things we learned about was that we had to lower all the barriers to entry hmm. to get people to join the membership. As as great as it was, if you were actually in it, getting anyone to enter in a credit card, especially a college oh student, God. is difficult. Um, and so we had to create giveaways and promotions for free a lot of times to get people to justify entering their card and giving it a try. And that yeah. was one of the big unlocks that allowed us to to um to grow much more quickly so you were like losing money on certain things but think about thinking about like lifetime value of a customer that whole thing yeah exactly so what it cost and we were scared to do it because we didn't know if we were going to have a real lifetime value or if everyone was just going to cancel that month and then we were really going to be in the hole and we didn't have enough capital to make some of those risks but we had to we had to try new things and we did and it turned out people weren't canceling at least not at the rate to where it didn't make sense to keep doing it and so we kept running promotions and that built momentum and that built trust and that built habit formation and all those things make it addictive yeah (laughs) yeah but all of our decisions are based around how do we bring friends together through social experiences and so there's so many decisions that go into that but um you know one of the features that we're talking about building is a treasure chest feature where we'll be able to gift people different giveaways or great deals and then allow empower them to share it with friends so we're giving them so much of what you see on the platform are stories of what people can tell friends for why it's why it makes sense for them to come together at a place okay so an exclusive deal creates a story for you to say hey we should do this instead of eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at home could you like paint a picture of what that could look like like very concrete like Say you're a user of Zup and you swipe over to the treasure chest tab or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, what do you see? What does it help you do? How does? What's the experience? Mm-hmm. So, so the treasure chest, you know, it might not be. You won't be able to see exactly what it was. So you have to click into it, and then it okay. will unlock and show you. And it might be a free pita at Little Greek in Waterford, a place okay. that you might not normally go to ever. Yeah. Um, and it's going to give you the ability to share that with a certain number of friends. So you got to choose wisely, but now you're empowered to hook your friends up with something incredible. Right. So we're gifting you with that, and people are able to be generous with who they want to be generous with, yeah. and now they've got this shared experience. And like maybe you could do it in a way where they have to go together, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're like really incentivizing people to have a nice meal with their friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something something else to, to further um, display our brand that we haven't gotten into that I'm really I really care a lot about and I think this is gonna be a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how to execute on this yet. 
but having things like conversational cues that are ready to go for people, especially at our giveaways when it's more of a Zup branded event, mm -hmm. having conversational cues. And I know that you've experienced experimented with some of these types of mm -hmm. uh, things to inspire interaction. Uh, it might be mini miniature games that people can engage with. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be important to find the balance between not forcing on people, but making yeah. it very available so they don't have to opt in. But what do you think? Yeah, I, it sounds like you're stealing my playbook, buddy. <laughs> uh, for context, at uh, my old company, Body Talk, where we would do nightlife events that um, help people make new friends and have interactions and build community through music events, um, we would have fortunes, is what we called them. So at, at midnight, someone would come out with a basket of uh, little fold-up uh, papers and hand them out to people with prompts, questions like... Um, share something vulnerable with the person next to you or what are you passionate about share it with the person next to you or uh you're the high five master you know go give 10 high fives to people and it was so simple um we one thing that we always thought about throwing our events was you know how do we become how, how do we do the financially sustainable thing how do we make enough money but also what we were tracking was how do how for the average person who goes to this event how many strangers are they meeting and how many genuine connections are they having with new people and when i think about printing a piece of paper and like cutting it into 10 strips and handing it out for 15 minutes and the amount of new connections and the level of depth that that can create it was just so like hyper effective mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. That's uh, that's really a meaningful metric to be tracking. What about um, how how did you did how did you find out what that what that meant to people? Was it through observation, or did you have um, conversations afterward to find out the impact of it? Or yeah, I mean, as as the leader uh, and and DJ and operations manager uh, manager and all these things. I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't my department, <laughs> but I was really fortunate to have someone who really cared about people meeting each other at the parties who was managing the uh, game, the games department. And we would have conversations after and, you know, you try, you try a new, you try a new game or you try a new activity like fortunes and there's the decompress after the party with the team. And we're like, hey, what did we do that actually worked? Did people actually use this? That was a question that we would ask a lot. And yeah, people people really did. So that was one of the um, one of the games that we tried to include in every party. What there's um, you know when I think about the college level, especially people who are going to b the bars, there's a there's a hesitation and there's a fear in me that they won't think it's cool or that they won't <laughs> engage with it, and so there's that risk. Yeah. And I think that at Body Talk events, you had already cultivated somewhat of a community that was ready for that and and knew that they were going to Body Talk because it was a certain type of crowd that it was attracting that would be open to that. Do you think that that type of um, activation would work in other environments. Yeah, I think there's two aspects to making that work. One is priming people who are going to the event. Like with Body Talk, we had our values of community and social connection and radical self-expression. So maybe the people who 
uh, weren't looking for that kind of thing. They were already kind of weeded out. They, 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 they self-selected themselves to not go. And the people who were interested in connection, they went. And so having kind of a, a primer before people enter into the space that introduces them to the values and introduces them to the idea of connecting, I think could be really powerful. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is I think about culture and I think about like, if I want you to tell a vulnerable story on the podcast, like maybe I'll start by telling a vulnerable story, right? Like modeling the kind of behavior that you want to see as part of culture. And when you're, when you're creating a container, when you're creating a nightlife space or any, any kind of event, it, that is a microcosm of culture. It's a little Petri dish. And if you want to start to create a particular kind of culture that has certain values or that interacts in a certain way, when you're socially engineering that kind of space, you want to be selective about who comes, at least like, especially to the first one. Set yourself up for success the first time by maybe only talk to your most engaged members of ZUP and maybe at the beginning of the event, talk about the values that you're trying to echo in the space so that you're priming people and kind of getting some acknowledgement of why everyone's there mm-hmm. on some level. Because say, say you do this at an event with 50 people and it's you set yourself up for success. It's people who are the most likely to kind of engage in those prompts. The next time, if you have those 50 people and another 50 people, those people will be modeling the behavior mm-hmm. and the culture can grow that way. Yeah, that's 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 a really sh- strong strategy for how, how you build that up because I think when, when we're looking at this, it's kind of intimidating to see 6,000 paying members and how do we... How, yeah. how how can we justify creating a, a micro experience? But I think that there is something special about building it from something small and, mm-hmm. and doing it in the right way that can create a greater movement of what we ultimately want to, to move into. Yeah, and I know you guys have really strong uh, social media presences. You have all these like accounts and whatever. So you can start to slowly introduce those values through those accounts. And you can just, you know, tease it, play around with it. And if people are responding well, kind of emphasize those points more and more. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I would love to see Zup talking about loneliness in college, you know. And obviously, hopefully putting a positive, you know, not not just talking about the loneliness epidemic and t- talking about solution and, like, we are the solution. But I think that it's such a huge problem. You know, you can be in a school of 60,000 students and feel fucking alone not look anyone in the eye all day and go home and turn on Netflix because no one hugged you, you know, (laughs) because you feel so disconnected and lonely. And if you guys can be a solution to that, don't just say that on podcasts, like say that to the people who are paying you $5 a month. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the, one of the challenges that we have is the, um, the, mainstream effect of the product that we're creating but i want to bring a more i want to bring some of those approaches to and and so it's a um it's a you know the strategy of how you take that approach is is interesting but i think you know what was interesting about me speaking my truth about the rebrand and me talking about the purpose and i did mention some of the things that we're talking about now um we had seven or eight people 
ask us if we were hiring, which was really interesting. Wow. So, so that was some evidence of speaking about the things that I care about that produces um, to where certain members of the community stand up and say that they believe what I believe. Did you do a video? What, what, it was, uh, what it was like a, a selfie style video on Instagram stories. And I just okay, recorded nice. and it was probably a three minute long thing. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Did, did people know you? I'm, I'm curious because I, I, I read the Seth Godin book tribes and it was a huge seminal book for how I think about community building. And he talks so much about leadership and like the tribe communicating with the leader so mm. in the in the digital app space there's kind of like this there there aren't really like leaders through the app like zuckerberg's not talking to me mm. through the app he's kind of like creating conditions interesting um so that was the first and only time i've ever shown my face in wow. this in the um in the almost eight years since it officially launched. So maybe that's something that needs to be explored more. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have purpose, which it seems like you do and you have something to say, I I don't want to put, I don't want to put you on a soapbox or anything like that or have your ego get too big. But if you're interested in creating culture and influencing people's behavior and how they think about how they engage with the app and how they engage with their city and, um, there's a lot of power in uh, speaking as a leader. Yeah, I think I think that's something that that I really respect about Brian Chesky. I've always looked at Airbnb about a company that mm. puts mission over over profits, and I really respect that and the way that he talks about the company. And and by no means is it a company that isn't going to be and is already wildly financially successful. But I love <laughs> that he's been able to go through venture capital while still maintaining purpose and company culture and all those things. And he's very outspoken about what he cares about and why they do what they do. And so I think that, um, you know, this is uh, one of those things that, that I'm learning through this conversation is the importance of me um, potentially stepping into that more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to change gears. I'm just here thinking about what a powerhouse social media builder you are. And not that social media is, is building community, but social media can grow communities and social media can keep interactions going, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I kind of want to like learn a little bit about your engine and what tips you would have for others who are using social media to grow their communities. Um, like what, what are your, what, what do you think are the most important platforms for community builders to be on? Mm. So that's always changing. And, um, you know, I think it depends on the demographic that you're going for. The way that you narrow that down for, for the audience that you're going after is just is really plain and simply thinking about where your tribe is or where your community is. Where yeah. are they spending their time? And then you focus in on there. And then you think about what content to create, to engage that community, to um, re-inspire them to re-engage with you and to, to become a fan of what you are creating, what you're putting out there. Yeah. And that's a little bit different for everyone, but there is an element of authenticity that I think yeah. can be really helpful from what I've seen as people and companies that I follow as far as um, they're being very real and true to who they say that they are. And that's going to continue to resonate with the right people and build the community let's, further. 
So let's let's get specific. If I wanted to build a community of like young people, maybe eighteen to twenty five, what's the top one or two platforms I should be on? Yeah, eighteen to twenty five, definitely Instagram. Okay. Um, Snapchat has become very personal and very group focused, and there's mm-hmm. not. It's very difficult. It's not. It's very difficult to build. Um, to build a following outside of your own personal account on Snapchat. So that's very difficult unless you want to pay for ads, which is extremely undervalued right now and oh. is a good way to pay for ads. Okay. Um, because not a lot of people are thinking about placing ads there. So if you if you have a budget, Snapchat's a great place to put dollars to reach that demographic. Cool. Um, but so much is living on Instagram now. Facebook is not cool for college students. Oh, man. Especially not for anyone yeah. younger than that. So fa- it's becoming very easy to not spend time on Facebook. Um, and then that narrows it down to essentially Twitter and Instagram. But Instagram is really the powerhouse that, that exists today. So how do you think about your marketing on Twitter versus Instagram? What What's each one kind of good for? For our brand, we've actually gone off of Twitter. Now that we've rebranded oh. to Zup, yeah. um, with Party Tutor, we created a personality and we used humor and we used... Um, entertaining content. Was it like I people. statements? It was like a person? It actually was a person when it was Party Tutor, which was really unique and not easy to pull off for certain brands, but because yeah. it was called Party Tutor, it was almost like a person. Yeah. And so that, yeah. one of the big ways that we grew in the early days was through Twitter and, and, and getting on the bandwagon of the growth of Twitter back in 2011, 2012. And so I had a friend who really understood it and she created the personality for me. Wow. And so she helped me understand brand voice through that. Uh, and she wasn't a, a social media guru. She was just good at it naturally. Yeah. And, but, it, but I was able to observe it and learn what it was like to have a brand voice through her, which was really cool. Could you get specific about that? I mean, it, yeah. only if it's useful. Like, I, I don't want you to give me Twitter tips that are outdated. But if there's principles to using Twitter to build a following, using Twitter to, um, yeah, to, to build a community, I, I would love to know. The most successful things on Twitter are always staying on top of the trending and most relevant memes or funny things that are happening in culture. Honestly, memes are the best way to grow. And the other thing about Instagram that we haven't dabbled back into because we've taken more of a premium brand approach, but even posting text on top of like. Instagram, people do not care about high-quality images as far as what they're engaging with. They will engage with a cartoon you know, picture with a quote, like a comic strip almost, more yeah. than a high-quality photo if it's something that's entertaining to them. Right. So, so much of social media, people are seeking entertainment, and they're going to reward entertainment by liking it. And when they like it, that means that your next post is going to be more likely to show up in their feed again. Right. And so it's really, you know... It's all about engagement, and it depends on the brand. But if you're posting funny things, that is best for any platform. Um, but not every brand can pull that off. And so, so are are you doing a lot of memes and funny things rather than like marketing messages? You kind of like keep balance between those. We've we've moved. 
we used to focus very much at least having a balance of funny things and balancing the more practical value proposition of what our platform does yeah. for people. Yeah, yeah. So there has to be a balance. So you, you, you know, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V talks about jab, 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 right hook was his book on social media. And that's the right, that's the right way for everyone to run social media. And essentially what that means yeah. is you add value, you add value, you add value, and then you ask for the sale. So when you think about social media and building community, it's not about telling people how good you are or what your product does. It's about serving them up things that are relevant to your space that are valuable for them to consume yeah. on social media. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't know, and I don't know if this is working, but in building this podcast, that's been my strategy so far is just how do I find interesting communities people are building, interesting principles to community building and um parts of counterculture in America that I find interesting or kind of pushing cultures forward and community forward and just doing I almost think of it as like a blog. And I haven't even posted anything about the podcast yet. I mean, when this com- goes out, there'll I'll, I'll start to promote the thing. Mm-hmm. But right now, I'm just trying to add value. Yeah, I think that's a great, great approach. It's the people that you want to attract. What would be an enjoyable piece of content for them to see on social media that's related to the topics that you care about and that you're going to talk about on the podcast? So I think that's a great approach. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about like writing high quality content on social media because some of these posts I am spending a lot of time on and I'm just not sure if like anyone's paying attention you know it's kind of like screaming into the void it's like like, I hope one day someone scrolls down and looks at early posts and it's like wow this is actually cool and well written but um there's no guarantee right yeah I, I think the great um so I mean I think it's really helpful, and, and I try to give myself this perspective, too. I don't always do a great job of it, but um, I think that so much of the joy that we get in life is doing the thing that we know, knew was the right thing to do, or, and another way to say it, doing the thing that we believed in. And so if you're doing this, and you believe in what you're sharing, and you believe that there are some people... Who, who believe what you believe and care about what you believe, mm-hmm. then all the effort is going to be worth it. And you can you can rest assured knowing that the work that you're putting in now was at the present moment, things that you believed in, and it didn't matter if it came to fruition or not. And it very likely will. And the thing is, I think that so many of the great movements, so many of the great um, influencers of our time and of previous generations it didn't really matter in the beginning who was listening or how many were. They were just doing the things that they believed in. And over time, sometimes faster, sometimes took longer. Mm-hmm. They f- the, the, the tribe ended up finding them. And so it's more about continuing to iterate and pursue what you believe in. It will attract the right people. And you don't have to hang on to success as your metric you know, success in a, in a metrics term, determining whether this was the right decision or whether you can feel good about the things that you did. So I think, you know, getting ourselves to a place where we don't regret things because Mm -hmm. we pursued, we followed where our heart took us in a lot of ways. And I know that's a gooey thing to say, but I think that there's something special about pursuing our heart that is, that is, um, that is really, 
important and fulfilling for us to do. And, um, and we can never, you know, if you pursue what you feel right in your heart, mm. there's no, there's never going to be, some, you, you, there's no room for regret when you're taking actions in that way. Yeah. It's like a, like a deeper truth than some social status semblance of success, right? Or some Steve Jobs, multi-billionaire kind of thing. And it's tempting, right? It's very tempting yeah. because even social media, it's really a game. It's been gamified through these metrics and uh, of likes and comments. And, um, you know, it, it, it feels like we're playing a game and it feels like we're losing the game if we don't get the likes. Um, and, and, and sometimes it is a useful metric to know what's working and what's not. There's definitely truth to that as well. But it doesn't mean that spending the extra time on the on the on the caption was not worth the time just because it is not showing up now yeah if you believe those things to be true but you know testing those things and and still observing them and not being oblivious to um to feedback that you're getting and but also not being overly romantic about the numbers that are showing up especially not now yeah this has been a really amazing and philosophical rich conversation Thank you so much for being here. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or requests for our for our audience? Um, I mean, you know, as as the audience grows and as people listen in, you know, I think we talked about some things that I'm still uncovering. Yeah, I'm still discovering, and so if people have ideas of how to build community, how to create experiences that engage people, that create uh, more of these inspired interactions, I I love talking about those things, and there's plenty more that I have to learn and. This was uh, a really enjoyable and in- insightful conversation for me as well. So thanks for yeah. having me. Thank you. Yeah. Where can people find you online or should so, they go to the Zup app or? Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, unfortunately it's very lo- location focused right now. So oh, okay. it's just at UCF and Florida State. So it might not be useful for most people who, who are listening to this. But, um, you know, you can connect with me on, on Instagram, speaking of social media. <laughs> it's uh, Brent Henderson. <laughs> with an underscore at the end of, at the end of that. Cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a place where I find myself sometimes DMing strangers or strangers will DM me to connect. Um, so I think it, it is a good place and social media has a useful place in our society, but it, right. at the same time we need to put it in its place and not allow it to disrupt the human connection that we all really need to experience in the real world. Yeah. I agree. Snaps all around. Thank you so much for taking this time, Brent. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure.